We have to go back! Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And today we are reviewing the 1988 just work of art, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Literally a work of art. <laughs> it. Oh my goodness. So typically when we do research for uh, a movie that we are reviewing, uh, we kind of like jot down like a page of notes or whatever. Uh, I have three pages of notes. Um, so I'll just say up front, I highly recommend that you check out one video in particular. Um, it is a video essay by, uh, video creator, Captain Kristen. He talks all about like just the intricacies of who framed Roger Rabbit. Um, and it's, his video is called who framed Roger Rabbit, the three rules of living animation. Uh, it's really, really interesting and I, it's like about seven minutes. Highly recommend it. It will be in the show notes. It's just so good because we won't be able to get to all of the things that we want to. Um, but that video alone is worth your watch. And it will give you even more context to how amazing this film is. Hmm. Yeah. So that being said, uh, let's jump right on in or hop right on in into oh. some... <laughs> Into some history. Uh, so, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is based off of a novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit. And it was more about comic strip characters than um, like TV cartoon animated characters. Um, and that, that comic came out in 1981. And as, basically, as soon as it came out... <laughs> Disney's like we want it, <laughs> like it, and because they Disney at the time was kind of struggling. This is pre uh, the whole Disney Renaissance, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit actually was the first movie that jump started the Disney Renaissance, the animation Renaissance. Because a lot of people attribute it to uh, Little Mermaid, which was the first mm-hmm. of Disney's um, fully animated Renaissance. But Who Framed Roger Rabbit and the success of it was the one that did it. So the comic, just a brief synopsis, is basically about um, Roger Rabbit, um, who actually gets murdered, uh, and you have to try to solve the mystery of who censored him, because in this world, cartoons speak in actual physical speech bubbles that just, like, kind of... When they're done talking, they just kind of litters in the town. So there's just like a whole bunch of like empty speech bubbles all over the place. And so um, one of Roger Rabbit's last words was like a line that like pointed to Jessica Rabbit. He's just like, how could you do this, Jessica? Or something rather. And then it's, there's an ellipses and then that's it. And so like they're trying to stop him from saying something. So... Jessica Rabbit is actually like the prime suspect and all these other things go about that. That's kind of the premise of the original uh, story that the movie was based on. Now into the production history. Um, So Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman wrote two drafts of the script before Disney brought in executive producer Steven Spielberg. I was so shocked to see Steven Spielberg. I didn't realize that. I mean, of course now it makes sense, but like that guy's everywhere. He's everywhere. And, Zemeckis was brought in to direct the film. I'm just like, oh man, like together, like what can't what can't they do? Oh, Bobby Z. <laughs> um, and the Canadian animator uh, Richard Williams was hired to supervise the animation sequences. Um, Who literally wrote the book on animation, by the way? I know this isn't helpful in podcast form, but I'm showing Ricky a book. Oh my gosh. Richard Williams called The Animator's Revival Kit. And, like, this is the book. Um, Wow. So you can see a lot of those principles throughout this entire movie. That's awesome. The movie was finally greenlit uh, when the budget was decreased to it's debated either 30 million or 70 million. I think it ended up being 70 million because during production, 
the prices just kept on going up. Um, but at that time, that was the most expensive animated film ever greenlit. Like at the time, like in 1988, 30 million was considered like record-breaking animation budgets. That's like a hundred dollars in 1947. A hundred dollars? Oh, yeah. You gotta be crazy. <laughs> uh, so the movie was released uh, in 1988, and it just did. Uh, I think the technical term is stupidly well uh, in the box office. And, I mean, of course it did. Because you look at it. You, you Just look at it. it uh, box office, it brought in $329 million. Um, and it just really uh, launched so much for Disney. Oh, gosh. It just, there's too much to say about it. Overall, the abridged version is it's great, and uh, this movie was so important when it comes to uh, what Disney was able to do afterwards. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but it was released through Disney's uh, subsidiary uh, production company, Touchstone Pictures, and I was just like, wait a second, where's the Disney castle? Like <laughs> During the opening, I'm like, Touchstone? That... I thought this was a Disney movie, but it is. Uh, Touchstone was the division where Disney released more mature content because uh, they didn't want to distribute it under the Disney label because Disney's like, yeah, this is kind of too adult for Disney to say it's Disney. We'll say it's Touchstone, even though it's us. No yeah. kidding. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of Warner Brothers in here as well. Yes, there is. So that's the history. We're going to go into some fun facts now because it's all kinds of crazy. Um, because Spielberg was behind the picture, um, one of the things that they uh, really wanted to do is they wanted to incorporate as many different animation styles um, and animation animated characters. Because in the novel, the novel features a famous comic strip characters like dick tracy snoopy dagwood um hagar the horrible so that was one of the things that they wanted to bring to life and that's one of the things that they saw as a great vehicle for disney in the movie so they went around to a couple of different studios and uh warner brothers uh agreed to basically license the characters out um for this world and they said we will only give you guys permission to use our biggest properties which is bugs bunny and daffy if they have the exact same screen time as the other counterparts which was mickey and donald duck so when donald duck and daffy are in the dueling piano scene like that whole scene they're on screen for the exact same amount of time same where mickey and bugs are parachuting um, they're on scene for the exact same amount of time, but mm. Disney has priority. Uh, so there are like 80 something Disney characters that show up and about 15 Warner brother characters that show up, uh, throughout the film. Yeah. Some of them are pretty passive too. Like Michigan J frog is just in the background. Yeah. Who was like the WB, like back when CW was the WB, like it was <laughs> the WB. Um, but that's that's an interesting point about the the equal screen time because if you look at those the biggest stars then they're usually doing the same thing. So like dueling pianos, one isn't like over the other. Same thing with the skydiving, like they're just kind of parody. I think the and like the best reveal at the end was the origin story of Porky Pig's "That's All, Folks," <laughs> and so that that kind of like incorporation of all of those different properties i think it's safe to say the true heroes of the film are the copyright lawyers <laughs> absolutely the unsung heroes because <laughs> there's a lot of tex avery in here too it looked like when yeah they had a couple of tex avery characters in there and they even had um who was it what is his name um chuck jones uh, Chuck, Chuck Jones. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck Jones was—he uh, worked on the film. He 
actually ended up kind of hating the final product, but he was the uh, he was one of the uh, consultants, animation consultants. Um, Zemeckis wanted the film to uh, kind of incorporate Disney's high quality of animation, uh, Warner Brothers characterization, and Tex Avery's humor. Like that's like his goal of bringing all of those three different studios kind of strengths together throughout mm. the film real quick i mean bob hoskins i can't imagine roger Abbott without him uh but he was not the first choice for eddie valley um harrison ford was spielberg's original choice because spielberg just loves himself some ford so uh, just would have been blade runner with cartoons <laughs> Oh my gosh, yes. Oh, and apparently uh, Bill Murray was considered for the part, but due to his method of receiving offers for roles, he missed out. Uh, in fact, he <laughs> said that like there during an interview, they say, yeah, we really wanted uh, Bill Murray. And Bill Murray's like reading this interview in a magazine and where, wherever he was, he just screamed because he would have loved to be in that movie. <laughs> We ended up with Bob Hoskins, uh, who just did a phenomenal job. Um, Tim Curry was originally auditioned for the role for Judge Doom, but and this is just this just happens with Tim Curry throughout his career. The producers found him to be too terrifying for the role. Like he yeah. he just keeps on saying, "I'd like to submit my audition." Ah, no, I'm sorry, guy. You're just too scary. We'll save you for that uh that Beauty and the Beast sequel and you'll be a pipe organ. That's that's what we will allow. But uh the choice that they ended up going with, Christopher Lloyd had worked with Tim Curry in the live adaptation of Clue. So That's right. Paths cross. Oh, that's great. Um and there's again, like we said before, tons of more fun facts, but this I'll, I'll give you guys this last one before we go into our reaction and our review. The film title is called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? But if you notice, there's no question mark. And it's considered in the industry to be like either bad luck or that movies with question marks don't perform well. Like there's some kind of weird research um, or uh, I guess superstition about that. But it's just a statement. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Period. Hmm. What about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf from 1966? Uh, the box office flop. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's that's just a little thing oh. that I thought was interesting. I'm sorry, interesting. I lied. I have more things. It's just too good. Um, so the whole storyline of um, Judge Doom mm -hmm. trying to like take over the the <laughs> red line. And like start building highways. Uh, that I was like, that's a really weird plot point. I'm just like, I guess it's like a nod to what actually happened, but it's based on real life. Yeah, that's like private a legitimate thing. I didn't know. So apparently, private corporations conspired to eliminate public transit in the late 40s and 50s in order mm -hmm. to generate a demand for automobiles and ancillary industries to keep said automobiles running. Yeah, that's why Los Angeles is in a constant state of carpocalypse. Yes. Uh, and we're only just now being able to rebuild the public transportation rail system. Um, but a lot of like the old lines are still in the streets. They're just not used. Like all those trolley systems are gone, especially like in the older parts of town. Man. Ooh, lastly. Oh, gosh, this is just too much. Um, I promise this is the last one. Um. So Charles Flesher, uh, the voice of Roger Rabbit, also famous for um, his on-screen presence in Back to the Future 2, telling Marty that the who's going to win the super the the thing oh, the the Cubbies got to put some money on the Cubbies. <laughs> yeah, and um, that's that's the voice of Roger Rabbit. Um, but he delivered Roger Rabbit's lines off camera. In full Roger Rabbit costume, including rabbit ears, yellow gloves, and his coveralls. 
So he would just like walk around the studio a lot wearing his costume and a lot of other studios were like, oh, look at the caliber effects on that rabbit movie. (laughs) (laughs) And everything was shot. And this is like ridiculous. Every single thing that you see was shot was shot first and then animated over. That means that every single frame of animation or every single frame of film, all like 24 frames per second, was printed out, physically drawn over. They didn't know like how it was going to look. There's so many people who didn't even know like what was actually going to be happening. They just responded and interacted. Like this was the first movie where not only well, this is the first movie where they had this degree to interaction between animation and live action because they, they've you know. One of the first um, Disney movies was um, Alice in Wonderland, where it's like a live action uh, Alice in like this hand drawn 2D world. And she's just like kind of in this green screen world running around. But like there hasn't been a movie um, at this point in time in 1988 where characters, cartoon characters are interacting with a physical human world where. Jessica Rabbit is taking off Bob Hoskins' hat, shoving it in his face, and the hat actually moving and not turning into a cartoon hat. Like, it's it's amazing. So, I'm just going to cut myself off, say those are the facts I have to share, and we can get into our review. Well, I think we would be remiss to piggyback on what you just said if we did not mention Bumping the Lamp, which <laughs> originated in this movie, and it's the scene when they're trying to to cut through the handcuffs, they bump into a ceiling lamp several times, which casts shadows all over the place. But the shadows are consistent between the live action and the animation. It's not necessary to tell the story, but it just adds to the overall realism of the film. It makes you buy into the idea that these characters are coexisting as cartoon and human Um, so bump the lamp has actually become like an industry phrase for going above and beyond, uh, in order to just like execute on this animated vision. Um, so when you put that little extra attention to detail, you are bumping the lamp. Absolutely. And even to add on to that, like, um, Richard Williams, you know, the animation director, um, you know, there's like an unwritten rule when, doing animation with live action is that you keep the camera static you're supposed to just keep it static don't move the camera so you can just draw on top of it so that it's just easy and he said yeah that's that rule is just made out of pure laziness like it's just because it's easier that way but if you'll notice throughout the film the camera constantly moves because they exist in the real world. If we want them to feel real, then we have to have the camera move. And so he wanted this to be like the the challenge that broke that rule to show what movement is possible when you are moving the camera. And it's just ugh, beautiful. Just a gift. And like like I said, we could just geek out over the just just the history of this movie that could be the whole podcast. But we are going to go ahead and go into our reactions and our review of the movie. Uh, so, Grayson, when was the last time that you watched this movie? And, two-parter, uh, when was the first time that you saw this movie? I had been aware of this movie much longer than before I had seen it. So, I don't think I saw this movie until, like, my 21st birthday or something like that. The last time I saw this movie was maybe three years ago, though. So I've seen it a couple of times since then. Um, hmm. The movie came out the year I was born, and so one year a friend of ours like got me a bunch of movies from 1988, and this was one of them. And so that was like the first time I watched, uh, watched this movie. So the first time I saw it, I was able to appreciate some of the like more adult humor in it and be like, Oh wow, this is pretty mature content. Um, this time though, I feel like I was able to enjoy it more from a look at these studios working together in this shared vision, um, kind of perspective. Cause I don't remember the last time I really saw something where people were like, Oh yeah, we'll just surrender that IP because <laughs> it's a good story. Uh, I'm looking at you, Marvel. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Sony gave up Spider-Man for the future, like, Civil War storyline to continue on. Um, but to something of this scale, I was just, I was blown away. Yeah, I saw, I remember this movie a lot. Um, I mainly remember the nightmares that I had of D- Judge Doom. Because um, I love the movie up until like the reveal of Judge Doom being a tune, um, his eyes turned to daggers. That for like years, I didn't see Roger Rabbit past that point. I didn't know how it ended. I just was like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> he kills him with her eyes. The end. And so, um, but yeah, this movie came on TV a lot, and I loved it. Like I remember watching it on like either the WB or a UPN. It would just like, like I think on Saturdays or Sundays they would have like a movie and they would play who friend Roger rabbit. And I watched it a lot. And uh, I even made like, um, I used to make my own toys as a kid. I would take like cardboard and brass brads and like draw and cut out and like make my own little, like kind of like marionette toys. Um, and I remember making like a, cause I used to get the Disney magazine. Disney used to have like a little tiny adventure magazine. And so who framed Roger Rabbit was on the cover of one of them. And so I remember I would draw, I drew Roger Rabbit and made like a three foot tall, like Roger Rabbit toy because I, cause I really just love that movie. And, oh, I can't believe I completely forgot about this. Roger Rabbit was the inspiration for one of my favorite anime shows on the Disney afternoon block bonkers um bonkers was bonkers was supposed to be roger rabbit the animated series but for some reason and i'm sure if i did research i could figure out but for some reason they're like nobody knows (laughs) and they never found out (laughs) but they ended up making it um about um a bobcat who worked in hollywood um okay it's um, am i gonna fight the urge to sing the theme song okay I'm not. Uh, once upon a time in Toontown, there was a cat that had it all. Fortune and fame, top of the game, up until it hit the wall. Now he's got a gig working downtown, working on a brand new beat. Something, 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 something else. Um, so he existed in Toontown as well? Yes. So it takes place in Toontown. Um, oh. And basically this cop gets a new partner and his partner is this Hollywood actor turned cop basically because that's how the law works. Uh, and so they start solving crimes in Toontown. Uh, so, but it's all animated, but you're supposed to just believe that like, Oh no, the people who look like humans are actually humans. And, and but that, that was the premise of that show is one of my favorite shows growing up. I loved it. I played the Sega video game more than I played most games as a kid. Um, I played Sonic a lot and pretty much, Sonic, Earthworm Jim, and Bonkers were like my games of choice growing up. And uh, it was super, super fun. Totally. Uh, All of which I'm pretty sure had Taco Bell uh, kids meal toys. (laughs) Yes. Oh my gosh. I have, I still have, it's at my parents' house, uh, a box, like we used to do box top toys. There was a little Bonkers badge that you could attach to your bike that was like a little police siren that you could... (laughs) <laughs> right on and oh man i need to go find that memories mm. yes i had an earthworm gym toy where you squeezed him and his head shot out yes yeah i think i lost the head and then the toy was done <laughs> almost immediately <laughs> yeah needed like a string or something <sighs> i mean even now i feel like this movie has some of the best rewatch value yeah, because there's so much to see. The thing I noticed this time um, was a couple of things. One, cartoons are jerks. Like it wasn't until Bob Hoskins is like flying down and the whole exchange between uh, Mickey and Bugs. He's just like, uh, "Hey, fellas, you got a spare? Oh, I, I don't, but oh, Bugs does. But I don't think you want it." He's like, no, I want it. Eh, I think you want it, Doc. Oh, well, bugs you. Bugs don't let him have it. And then he gives him a spare tire, and then they just fly up. Just like, you guys are jerks. Like, that whole exchange was you like. You could have oh. taken a life. 
Oh man, but I love, yeah. but, but with that, I just love the cartoon logic uh, that is like sprinkled throughout the film uh, because just like Roger Rabbit with his handcuffs and he's like, oh man, uh, he's like trying to keep the table steady and then he weasels out of the handcuff, holds the table, he's like, is this better? <laughs> he says, you mean you could have gotten out of that at any point in time? No, only when it was funny. It's just like, I love it. That's a really important line, though, because it it does fuel a lot of their actions as to like why would they do this? And like because they are driven to do the highest percentage choice for what is funny. Yep. Uh, yeah, really and it's just like choice of the screenwriter. Seriously, or, or even the fact that uh, that's the very beginning. Read what what does it say, Roger? He gets hit by the refrigerator, and we see stars, and just like. What are these? These are birds. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, yes. And then he keeps like hitting himself in the head. He's like, I can do stars. And it's just like, I just love this. It's just a very small detail that um, that just speaks volumes and um, raises nerd glasses. Uh, there are several cartoon characters that show up in this movie um, that did not make their debut until after 1947 where the movie takes place like uh let's see yeah wiley coyote first appeared in 1949 um marvin the martian first appeared in 1948 you know things like that but the fact that these are tunes like living in toontown it just means that they haven't been discovered yet which i absolutely love it's (laughs) It's the la la land of the cartoon world (laughs) City of Tunes. <laughs> I would love if this was like an origin story for some of those characters where like Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner are best friends. <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. Oh no, there goes there's this short of a Bugs Bunny. There's like a Bugs Bunny short that talking about like how Bugs Bunny became a star. And it's like, well, um, I wasn't like most babies and just like chronicles his life and it Basically, shows that like Elmer Fudd discovered Bugs Bunny, um, and that they had like a stage play that was put on that got picked up for a cartoon, basically, and that's like how Bugs Bunny became a star. Like that's his canon. Like I would love for that to be like the same with like Roadrunner Coyote. Like they're just like besties, just like hanging out at a diner. Just like opening up a newspaper, <laughs> circling the classifieds together. Never realized it till just now, but Elmer Fudd definitely has like a hitman from Fargo kind of vibe to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's just like hellbent on murder and is also kind of polite, but has like a weird way of speaking. <laughs> yeah, he's the animated version of Fargo. <laughs> Yes. Oh man, is in the one of the other things I realized in this movie is um they they kind of very subtly throughout the film they give you hints of Judge Doom's like mm. reveal. So the the dip, which is made of um you know Turpentine paint thinners, and, yeah, benzene and acetone, um mm-hmm. which raises nerd glasses, um, are all paint thinners, which are used to remove animation from animation cells. And uh, when Roger, like, blows up steam in the bar and the dip spills over, like, this stuff isn't harmful to humans, but Judge Doom steps back. Because mm-hmm. um, I was watching it with my wife, who watched it for the first time because she wasn't allowed to watch um, past the first cartoon, <laughs> just because of the profanity that immediately ensues after that. <laughs> sure, so she's sure. like, "Yeah, after that cartoon, she's like, oh, there's a movie after this.' Uh, <laughs> but um, so I'm just watching it, like, and I'm just like, oh, she doesn't know that he's attuned because like that he just steps back to not step in it, and anytime he does." use the dip he's always wearing these very thick um gloves and he never blinks he's i just thought he went to the tune. michael kane school of acting <laughs> well it was 1947 so he did so michael kane was 30 
Uh-huh. <laughs> Guy's been around forever, and he's going to be around forever, and the world is better for it. Yes. Um, but yeah, and that was just like small little tells uh, mm-hmm. for his identity. Uh, and it's just, ugh, it's so cool. And my favorite scene with him is where they're hiding out in that bar. And he walks in, and he says, Ah, the merry-go-down broke down. Quite a loony selection for a bunch of drunken reprobates. Uh, That's one of my favorite scenes. And then Roger, he's like, ah, no tune can resist the old shave and a haircut. That's one of my favorite scenes of all times. Because, like, Roger can't resist it. He literally can't resist it. He's like, shave and a haircut. Tell He just breaks through. I just love that scene so much. I mean, Judge Doom is basically the animated version of uh, Christoph Waltz in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, oh my gosh, yes! Not to minimize anything that happens in that movie, but is no. that kind of very like methodical, psychopathic hunting? Oh my gosh, seriously, that's so on point. Oh yes, because Christoph Waltz just is. He's just very calm and calculated. Like, because he, he almost, like, cause Judge Doom almost never lost his composure until <laughs> he's just like, remember what happened last time? Don't laugh. It's like, you're going to kill, like, what, what is this? Like, well, these days are going to die laughing. And so when that whole scene happened, I was just done. Like, I was just laughing so hard. Like, when the, I forgot that they actually just died. And then he's like, you're killing them. You're knocking them dead! Just like all those... Just like, this is too much. This is too much. It's just so, so good. I love that part. I also appreciated more this time that for every little hint that we got at Judge Doom's real identity, we also got some backstory from Eddie's past. Yeah. I think the scene where he kind of like drinks himself into a stupor at his desk but then we mm-hmm. look at all the other things in his office there's no words it's only music but we get his entire backstory just from that one montage i was like that is so beautiful and i just finished the first season of westworld no spoilers but one of the big things that they harp on in the narrative of that show is that like the narrative of the characters has to be anchored to a specific event to give them a believable backstory mm-hmm. and I mean, this absolutely does that 100%. Like, Eddie Valiant is who he is because of his brother's death. And so anytime there's, like, a question on his next move or why he would react the way he's reacting, it is consistent with that backstory, which is intertwined with Judge Doom's own backstory. So narratively, I think this is just super tight. And from, uh, like, a screenwriting, but also, like, actors able to execute on that backstory it's just a a, like a great example of how you do that um while still maintaining the light tune environment so masterful absolutely well i didn't realize as a kid because i guess i just don't think i had the mental bandwidth to take it in at the time but like the whole the concept that like Eddie's character used to be very, very happy and joyful and like excitable, and that his dad, like, I didn't pick up the whole detail that his dad was a clown, mm. um, and that him and his brother uh, de- decided to be detectives together, and they just like, yeah, we used to love working two town. We thought it would be a gas, and I love also that the reason why Roger goes to him is just like everyone knows if a tune's in trouble, you got a valiant and valiant. I'm just like, oh. That's so great. Like he used to be the the guys for the people, like PIs for the for the tunes, um, and that he he helped Goofy out of some case. I, I I just remember saying, ah, Goofy gets off of these charges or something. I'm just like, oh man, that's so great. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't uh, pick that up the first time I saw it. And the fact that he and Dolores already had a relationship. It, it's a lot easier to buy into rather than like he's going through this investigation but also spinning up a new love interest at the same time. That's always a really tough sell. Yeah. Um, it It's more consistent with the character's goals that they reconnect at the end 
because he's able to be more like how he used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just really solid character writing. I felt like it was really cool to be able to see the mindset of a cartoon character like being played out outside of a cartoon, which mm-hmm. was it's just so good because like re raises nerd glasses. Um, it's like when you watch. Why are your like, glasses slipping so much? I don't know. I I guess they're the frame is just too big. Um. <laughs> From reading books, nerd. <laughs> Um, so one of the core character concepts that Chuck Jones established with uh, Bugs Bunny is that Bugs Bunny never starts a fight. He he always retaliates, and that way the that's that way you can empathize with him. Because otherwise, if Bugs Bunny goes around starting fights, he's the bully. Um, yeah. And so that that's just like a small character choice and rule um, that makes Bugs Bunny a very likable character that you root for because he's always standing up for the little guy and he's usually the little guy. But the thing I really liked about Roger's character is that, um, he, he was a very, let's just say he was a very talented, natural, uh, cartoon actor, but at the same time, um, as a person, he is, uh, very clumsy, uh and very honest and passionate um but just he just is naturally just a goof um but i loved how his character motivation throughout the movie is just like listen i wouldn't hurt anybody like i would take an anvil for anyone basically uh but he himself wouldn't like harm anyone and the fact that in a crime of passion it's like, so you mean to tell me in your outrage, you went and wrote your wife a poem? He's like, of course I did. I'm just <laughs> like, Roger, you're too sweet. You're adorable. Like, I just love, like, that is his his good nature Like, he, I just I just thought that that was just so great. I, I really liked his motivation and even Jessica Rabbit's motivation. She's just like... No, like I would never hurt my husband. I always, I just wanted to get him out of harm's way. And they said that Roger would never work in this town. So, of course, I played patty cake with Mr. Acme. And by the way, the fact that Mr. Acme was the actual guy who actually produced things was maybe the best choice I could have ever made for that movie. <laughs> just like, uh, and then even when he's in Toontown and um, Eddie crashes into a car and the, the, the side of the truck said, Acme's overused gags. And it's just like a piano and a handbill and things like that. I just loved it. I just loved the world that they built um, and the characters' motivations and just like how everyone had a very clear want and desire and end goal. I just, I just thought that was so great because there's so much that, like I said before, that you can see and appreciate each time that you watch this movie. Absolutely. All right, now it's time to draw. Nope. Um, let's let's just go into headcanon. Um, <laughs> Sponsored by Acme Headcanon. <laughs> It'll blow your mind. <laughs> headcanon is a part of the show where we share unique ideas about the movie and untold stories based on evidence provided by the film. Drawing conclusions, if you will. There Drawing you go. Conclusions. That, that's the one. Uh, so my main piece of headcanon is that this movie takes place in the same world as Space Jam, which I don't think is that big of a stretch. Um, but I do think that uh, the similarities being how the tunes in Space Jam, like we talked about when we reviewed Space Jam, which you can listen to on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever RSS feeds go for the retro movie nights, they were acting out the cartoons that the kids were watching, and they said, hey, there's an emergency tune meeting, and they, like, ran off to Warner Brothers land, um, and, like, there was, like, nothing on the TV screen. Mm-hmm. I think that that would be very similar to, like, how they were producing cartoons, except I think warner brothers world would be just like a different faction that's like basically the warner brothers studios like all right guys well toontown is where all the tunes live i think that at one point in time they kind of adopted the early studio model which was like hey 
we own these actors and these actors are only going to make movies for this studio until the end of time <laughs> until unions develop but i think that that's how warner brothers probably said all right great we're going to take all of our tunes and we're going to only make movies over here so that's my headcanon with that yeah well you basically took mine that uh <laughs> this is a prequel to space jam mm. um since it both exist in reality. So I'm going to scramble real quick and come up with two mini headcanons. So my first mini headcanon is that this is actually a prequel to the Mario Brothers movie. Um, <laughs> where Eddie Valiant is Mario and Luigi's father. Um, they establish the model of working with brothers with Valiant and Valiant and continue it with Mario Mario. Uh, it's both a tale of average people who step into an extraordinary, fantastical world uh, in order to uh, save those creatures. So, um, yes, Eddie Valiant is Mario's dad. Uh, and then my second mini headcanon would be that this is an alternate reality within the Back to the Future world. Um, because if you look at Judge Doom, he is very similar to Citizen Brown from the Back to the Future video games, mm. where history and the timeline, I should say, has been rewritten so many times that it has started to fracture reality. And so tunes are actually a result of rewriting the timeline too many times, where parts and corners of the universe start to lose their humanity and are forced to become a little more flexible um, with the tampering. That's, that's all I got. I mean, that last one makes the most sense and I'm scared by that. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's, that's really solid. Even down to the, the musical cues because judge doom's theme uh, is actually very similar to the Back to the Future Part 2 alternate 1985 theme. Um, mm. So if you listen to them together, it's like the, the high strings and then the the abrupt stop in that uh, that musical cue. Anyway, that's all I can do. <laughs> now that's really really interesting huh i like that my other piece of headcanon is that like it's it's more so about like the potential future of like roger rabbit um because basically uh there have been a lot of roger rabbit cartoons i mean actually after the movie there were three roger rabbit shorts that were created and played before movies, and one of them which played before Toy Story. Uh, the theatrical release oh. of Toy Story played a Roger Rabbit cartoon before the movie actually came out. Um, huh. Yeah. And, um, but I think that with the, the way that tunes work uh, and the way that actors work in our life is that um, I think the headcanon is that like, Roger Rabbit has retired from acting, but is now a cartoon writer. <laughs> and that Cartoon Network was actually created by a bunch of retired cartoon actors who then subsequently started creating new content for, like, new people. And so they started discovering new actors. Like, it's like, hey, this kid Dexter, he's really got moxie. I think we should... uh write this vehicle for him and like i think that cartoon network and boomerang are like the networks created by tunes from toontown who no longer have like a in front of camera career uh, and that they kind of run the new cartoon industry huh so you're saying roger rabbit is the animated version of dalton trumbo <laughs> Yep, you heard me loud and clear. <laughs> I was actually more so thinking of Roger Rabbit as being more like a Ron Howard. Oh, yeah. Or Charlie Chaplin. I've always thought yeah. Charlie Chaplin and Ron Howard were very similar. <laughs> but yeah, that they they just move into different areas of production yeah. throughout their career. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Now I'm picturing 
uh, Roger Rabbit narrating Arrested Development, and it's pretty entertaining in my mind. It wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, that would be so great. This is Arrested Development. (sighs) All right. Well, enough of my poor impression of Roger Rabbit. Um, Normally, we would do uh, recasts and remakes, um, but it's really hard to recast cartoon characters. Uh, (laughs) So um, we'll do a really quick round of it. Um, I would change nothing. Absolutely nothing. Um, However, (laughs) if it were to be made today... um, if they were to do like uh like redo uh Who Framed Roger Rabbit but with like 3D animation, which Ooh. I think w- could be like really amazing, I was like really surprised that like, we haven't done something like this. Um, I guess Looney Tunes back in action probably made that not possible for a while. Um, but I would say um I would go younger. Um, or yeah, well, no, he would need to be older. Okay, yeah. We- I- I would go older. I'm thinking Mandy Patinkin. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I was, because uh, originally I was thinking Josh Gad, just because, I mean, I love Josh Gad. Um, at, but actually, so he also turned down the role. This guy, well, this guy who I'm about to suggest turned down the role originally. So I would actually love this for all the reasons. Eddie Murphy. Mm. Eddie Murphy actually turned down the role and in an interview completely regretted it i would love to see eddie murphy act alongside like roger rabbit like that would be so cool like eddie murphy as a detective i mean it's 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 beverly hills cop well the 3d uh element to it i would love to see donkey from shrek as one of them as well i really think that that's why he took that role it's just like i will never (laughs) make this mistake again but i would love eddie murphy um as like uh like a like a early 40s detective like working the beat and, and cartoon, uh, I just think that would be so good, and especially yeah. just with the effects. I think they, I don't even know if they could sell the effect better because just because of the intricacies to which they went for this movie. But I would, I would love to see that because I, I think they could do an even better job. Because again, this movie didn't have like three D tracking; it didn't exist, guys. They just hand drew everything. That's unbelievable. And the fact that the eye lines are as consistent as they are blows my mind. Uh, for Judge Doom, I would cast Bill Hader. Of course. Yes. Um, I really like the idea of doing a new version with like DreamWorks IP and Pixar IP and Illumination yes. Studios. But instead of the characters looking like they normally look, they would be like, ultra photo realistic renderings of them and it's just super gritty you can just, go to the different world it's like a western and it's like woody is actually the sheriff of this town and yeah that would be amazing just like just hit right down in the uncanny valley just mm-hmm. right there oh that'd be amazing i mean full just like rogue one yes. cg photorealistic renderings absolutely of these actors. yeah All right, now we're going to go into our final segment of the show where we give you our reasons to recommend. So, Grayson, why would you recommend Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Um, It's not just me recommending it, Ricky. It's the Oscar Academy recommending it. (laughs) We didn't mention it earlier, but this movie won three Oscars plus an additional special achievement Oscar for Richard Williams in his animation direction, and it was nominated for three additional Oscars, including Best Cinematography. Like, that's that isn't divided up by, like, comedy or musical. That's just flat-out Best Cinematography. Uh, it's amazing that it had the, uh, like, the success that it did, like, the critical acclaim, because I can't think of, like, an animated movie now uh, especially one outside of the like Pixar realm that has this kind of like award clout to it. And I think the animation, obviously we've, we've talked a ton about that. That'll only get you so far. Like, yes, it's technically, especially for the time, like super polished, but at the heart of it, it has a story that feels timeless um, because they nail the film noir genre. 
the characters are built on solid backstories and have authentic motivations. So I think that's why this movie will continue to be watched and pointed to as, as a classic, both for live action writing and animated writing. Absolutely. This movie, to me, just feels like it has so much heart and respect for the artistry of animation. It's like in the same way that like you watch um, like Labyrinth and you're just like, oh, my gosh, like they just went to this degree to sell this effect. And they do that constantly, like like the integration between film and live action, like this movie is just like a love letter to animation. Um, and also it shows you the potential of what can be done with like the arts and so much creativity and forethought and planning. And I just really think it's, I, I, th I think I'm just particularly a sucker for movies that like deal with like stories within industries. I would recommend this movie because it's, a great work of art it's just such a fun like if you're looking especially for like it's a fun detective movie and mystery yeah. like you're trying to figure out this thing and if you love cartoons like you have to watch this movie you just have to like this is this is like the citizen kane of animated movies <laughs> Bold claim, but I'm going to say it. It's just like it was one of those things that is just so important to see um, and understand. It's like or its significance to its time and to the future of both animation and film. So that is our review of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, let us know what you remember about Who Framed Roger Rabbit and what's your favorite moments on Twitter and Instagram in both places. We are at Flashback Flicks. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out over on iTunes. It helps our podcast to get discovered. Um, and like a good tune, um, we would love it if you gave us some stars um, instead of birds. Um, no, no bells. No, no. Uh, no swirls. Yeah. Yeah. Five stars would be great. Um, and if you'd like to write out a review, um, write us a review and write it in the voice of your favorite cartoon character. I actually really look forward to reading those. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> and we should be tuning in next time right here on the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. Until then, remember to be kind and rewind. That's all, folks. Oh, that's copywritten? Got it.